Hello and welcome to the Energy Efficiency Podcast, sponsored by EcoFlap Home Draft Proofing Products, the ideal fit and forget energy efficiency solutions, including the Pet Flap Draft Proof Pet Door. My name is Heather Lindsay and I'm the Communications Manager for EcoFlap. This weekly podcast will bring you a mix of news, products and tips all year round. This time, energy efficiency in theatre, energy as an investment and the Scottish Government's switched on towns and cities schemes. But first, at the end of last week, the UK Government announced that fracking is to halt in the country with immediate effect. Support for future projects has been withdrawn too. Fracking, or hydraulic fracturing, is a method of releasing shale gas from underground. Shale gas is a form of fossil fuel, and it was the big new hope for the fossil fuel industry. Fracking has been controversial from the off worldwide, for reasons including contamination of water and destabilisation of the ground around fracking sites. There have been many small earthquakes in areas hosting fracking projects. Opposition has been strong and vociferous. A new scientific study carried out by the Oil and Gas Authority has concluded that it's not possible to rule out that fracking puts local residents at risks of, quote, unacceptable consequences. The report also concluded that it's impossible to predict the magnitude of earthquakes that might result from fracking. The fracking site at Preston New Road in Lancashire had to stop production a few months ago after triggering several earthquakes that breached government limits, despite the government considering reviewing its limits for the magnitude of earthquakes caused by fracking. The government says it will maintain this new position until it sees incontrovertible evidence that fracking is safe. Quadrilla, the main player in UK fracking, has already begun removing equipment from the site in Preston. Anti-fracking campaigners see this as confirmation that the great fracking experiment is over, perhaps not least because planning permission for fracking at Preston New Road runs out at the end of November. Think back, if you can, to the last time you went to theatre. Was it last night, last year or even the last century? Were you in a state-of-the-art building run efficiently in every respect? Or were you in a Georgian building, or maybe a 1950s gem, or even something built at the beginning of this century? Chances are that theatre, one of around a thousand actively in use in the UK, plus the infrastructure serving it from the loos to the car park, are a bit creaky, possibly listed, and very much due for improvement. The theatre world is very aware that change is overdue, and many are on the case. In some cases, there's little that can be done with the building without an enormous investment of cash and a wholesale refurbishment, which isn't necessarily feasible. So in those cases, energy efficiency has to focus on everything else. Theatre generally considers itself a socially aware sector that's well-placed to bring home to audiences the impact of climate change. Theatres are embracing this opportunity and combining sustainability measures with productions that help to spread the climate emergency message. The National Theatre in London is in a listed 1970s brutalist building built at a time when energy efficiency wasn't a consideration. The National has now switched to LED lighting in its auditoriums and foyers and crucially it's installed monitoring systems to help reduce energy use. How many other theatres have a combined heat and power plant on site? The extra that the National needs is generated by wind and solar. 
One of its buildings, constructed much more recently in 2013, is heated and cooled by a ground source heat pump. To date, the National has reduced energy waste by 25% in the last three years and plans to make it to net zero. The National is taking all the usual steps to reduce waste and single-use plastic in its catering services. It's looking widely at its use of resources and now pulls its non-drinking water from the London Chalk Aquifer, reducing strain on mains water. Its workshops have living roofs and beehives. On its website, the National refers to production waste. It recycles nearly half of its production waste and plans to increase that. It's examining the fine detail of staging shows to see where efficiencies can be made and it will share that information with the rest of the industry. We profiled Julie's Bicycle in episode 13. This is a charity that works with the cultural sector to encourage sustainability and to help it implement energy efficiency measures. The National Theatre has been awarded a four-star Creative Green rating by Julie's Bicycle. It's stored particularly highly for commitment and understanding of the issues. This creative green thing is a pilot scheme and it's aimed at reducing the environmental impact of taking shows on tour. You just imagine, think of some of the more spectacular productions you've seen. The sheer volume of scenery and all that has to go into some form of transport and it might be going 200 miles north or 300 miles west. All these measures taken together mean that the National Theatre now has a B-rating energy certificate up from G 10 years ago, and it has a comprehensive environmental policy which it keeps under review. Of course, running a theatre is an incredibly expensive business. Energy efficiency can make a difference to the bottom line, even in a building struggling to meet today's low energy standards. A survey carried out for the journal Arts Professional revealed that of the theatres planning capital works in the next five years, half were intended to improve energy efficiency. Heating, ventilation and stage machinery eats up a big chunk of a theatre's energy use. Meeting today's expectations of comfort can be energy intensive in an older building, but there are solutions. As at the National, LED lighting is being installed widely, but interestingly, it can't yet meet all the lighting requirements in theatres. Last year, EU legislation threatened to pitch all UK theatres into darkness, as their often old-fashioned lighting would have been considered obsolete and it would have fallen foul of the law, but disaster was averted. However, this served as a wake-up call to theatres that they have to do everything they can to maximise the energy efficiency of their lights, because they don't just have lights in the auditorium and in the foyer and in the loos, they have all sorts of complex lights that are vital to the way the production put on. Seeing to these, maximising the energy efficiency is brings an element of future-proofing to theatre, as well as money-saving, which is absolutely vital to a theatre's economic viability. And it's worth bearing in mind what's involved in switching to LED lighting, or even just changing a light bulb in an older theatre. The 100-year-old Strand Theatre in Shreveport, Louisiana in the USA received a grant from energy company Swepco towards switching to LED bulbs. This projected a saving of 20% on electricity bills. It's part of a Swepco project to help non-profit organisations lower their bills. In the Strand Theatre, 
2,000 bulbs were replaced across the auditorium, dressing rooms, a 14-foot chandelier, storage rooms, box office, and so on and so on. Getting to some of these places needed more than a ladder. Lifts were required for access to the marquee, and the chandelier requires very careful hand-cranking down from the ceiling, while the person doing the cranking lies in a tiny little crawl space. Accessing the proscenium arch means crawling underneath walkways and reaching up through a tiny hole just barely bigger than the arm. The light fittings themselves are often old and delicate, so the longer life of the LED bulbs means that this sort of thing won't have to happen very often. We've mentioned before that switching to LED lighting is a quick fix, or a reasonably quick fix. And one of those energy efficiency measures that improves customer or user experience while also improving efficiency and saving money. You know, everyone prefers to be in a, a, a better lit car park, better lit lose. And as well as making the environment nicer for patrons, these sorts of energy efficiency and money saving measures don't have to be restricted just to the theatre building. Sometimes the act of considering what to start with can act as a catalyst for reviewing other areas of a building's performance. The Lyric Theatre in Hammersmith is one theatre that's including LED lighting in a comprehensive programme of energy efficiency and sustainability improvements. The building itself has an interesting history. It spent many years, well the theatre spent many years, in a late Victorian music hall and then in the 1960s the building was threatened with demolition so the auditorium was dismantled and rebuilt somewhere else with a modern shell. This current sort of mashup dates from 1979. Work to monitor and reduce the building's carbon emissions have gained it an excellent bream rating. Since 2015, the Lyric has reduced energy use and emissions by more than 50%. The Lyric works with a company called Green Clover, which was previously known as Scenery Salvage, which, as you would expect, recycles stage scenery and props and is the only company doing this. On its website, Green Clover reveals the shocking statistic that 95% of scenery and props in this country are scrapped. Green Clover sells, rents out or recycles the props and scenery. Recycled scenery is turned into biomass which fuels the vehicles that Green Clover uses to collect the scenery. Plastics and metals are reused. Polystyrene is made into fuel or processed for turning into new goods. Green Clover says that nothing goes to waste. Items up for sale are going for a lot less than scenery would usually cost which has to encourage theatre companies to source items this way. The theatre, getting rid of its scenery and props, pays tra uh, transport costs, a weight per tonne and labour costs, and Green Clover believes that the costs to a theatre will be no greater than what it costs at the moment to ditch scenery and props, because that doesn't come for free, so why wouldn't you do it? The Arcola Theatre in London moved to a former paint factory in 2011. It incorporated salvaged materials into the building works and it now plans to become the first carbon neutral theatre. To achieve this, it's fitted solar panels and solar thermal panels, a carbon neutral boiler, LED lighting and DC microgrids. I'm prepared to admit that I'd never heard of a DC microgrid and the explanations are mind-bending if you aren't already well informed about how electricity is delivered. So there's a link in the notes if you want to read about it. What does seem clear though is that DC microgrids allow for very efficient delivery of energy.
The Arcola is not the only theatre to reclaim items. The Everyman in Liverpool took its bricks with it from its old building to its new one, and Tara Arts in London used auditorium seating from a temporary RSC venue. The Everyman harvests rainwater for flushing loos, a smart move if we're going to be getting more wet weather. It too achieved a Bream Excellent rating, which is awarded to only a very small proportion of new non-domestic buildings. The Theatres Trust runs a grant scheme together with the Wolfson Foundation, and its most recent funding round has focused on improving sustainability. Applications closed in September this year, so sorry, we're a bit late with this. Hello, Kevin. Hello, and what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about switched-on towns and cities. I'm guessing this is energy-related. Yes, specifically the energy Scots use in getting about, so transport. And is this another grant thing? Yes, but it's also money for a feasibility study. Several local authorities have secured feasibility studying funding in this first round. Do we know who they are, or is it a big secret? They're a good mix of urban and rural areas with different transport considerations. Is that different types of transport? No, actually. Despite the reliance on ferries and air transport in the Highlands, Orkney and Shetland, all of which have received funding, along with urban areas including Stirling and North Lanarkshire, no, this project is all about plug-in electric vehicles. So it's a funding scheme? This isn't just any funding scheme. This is, and I quote, intensive high-impact capital activity designed to incentivise and promote plug-in EVs. What are the conditions around applying for the funding? Transport Scotland is targeting areas best placed to deliver both infrastructure and the local incentives to use it. It'll work with each successful local authority to create a feasibility study tailored to that area and then to help deliver it. And it's doing the feasibility bit with the Energy Saving Trust. So is this aimed at private car owners? It covers a range of vehicles, including taxis, local authority fleet cars and car clubs, as well as private cars. And what does the funding cover? Charging points? Well, that is a big part of it. Glasgow City Council won a couple of million in the 2018-19 funding round and plans to put an EV charging hub on derelict land near the city centre. Sounds like the start of something. A coffee shop to while away half an hour while your car charges? Yeah, and a shop, so you can use your time productively, get what you need for supper. You can even organise parcel collection points around it and so on. You can see how that initial investment leads to other things. Glasgow will also see EV points for taxis and private cabs and other public charging points. Beyond that, it will finance several EV car clubs and a trial parking permit system. The council plans to acquire 100 electric vehicles for its fleet and to trial two electric bin lorries. Is this pretty representative of how local authorities are using the money? Installing charging points is widespread, yes. But how they're cited varies. Stirling Council is spreading its new charging points across the city and at the university, a sports village, residential areas, school car parks, community facilities. Normalising it, so there's a charge point at all the normal places you might find yourself. Exactly. Sterling plans to trial using streetlight pillars as sites for charging units. In another area, a car park with charge points will be made available to local people who live in the tenements and don't have access to other charging facilities. Sterling will ensure bus charging points are available and it's working charging points into the redesign of Dumbarton Road. Therefore using expected and planned maintenance or refurb to introduce new measures. We've seen how effective that can be in keeping costs down. 
Most of the local authorities that won funding in 2018-19 are buying electric fleet vehicles. They have to renew them every so often anyhow. They do, planned works, just as we said. Edinburgh City Council is introducing different speed EV charging infrastructure in different zones to reflect the different usage in those areas. How does that work? Okay, so, for instance, in the city centre, there will be rapid charging hubs for taxis, because they're only stopping often for short periods of time, at least they hope so. But at the park and ride, slow chargers will top up private cars while their owners are at work or or all day, you know, or shopping for a few hours. So, in other words, that slow charge is fine when a car is going to be parked for, you know, four hours or eight hours. So, there's a mix of fast and slow charging facilities in residential areas, and that's all going in next year rapid fast and slow yes rapid is blink and you miss it fast is you know fast and slow is slow older cars can take longer to charge and certain cars might not get the full benefit of faster charging and blah 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 blah. i guess newer vehicles will always be aiming for the more expensive faster charge options falkirk council is basing its ev car clubs in the more deprived areas of the town as well as the busy locations so town center railway stations i guess it's easy to think of electric cars as being the preserve of those with money buying a new car is expensive so this is a great idea If a council can match the funding thereafter, their bid is more likely to succeed. Generally, it's just the one area applying, but a joint bid can work if there's a sensible basis for it. Transport for Scotland is particularly interested in bids that facilitate charging for tenement dwellers and other people without off-street parking. Um, Like that car park scheme? Yeah, exactly that sort of thing. I have concerns that it's encouraging car ownership and car use, which even with electric cars has its downsides. But if things like car clubs open up opportunities to people, it's really hard to be critical. Giving people the opportunity to take up work that they currently can't even get to. Yes, and getting to medical appointments that would otherwise be a nightmare or a one-off trip here and there. So where does all this want to end up? The goal is that Scotland has 20 electric towns and cities by 2025, phasing out the need for new petrol or diesel cars and vans by 2032. Investopedia defines a green bond as, quote, a bond specifically earmarked to be used for climate and environmental projects, intended to encourage sustainability and to support climate-related or other types of special environmental projects. More specifically, green bonds finance projects aimed at energy efficiency, pollution prevention, sustainable agriculture, fishery and forestry, the protection of aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems, clean transportation, sustainable water management, and the cultivation of environmentally friendly technologies. Ends. Green bonds, also known as climate bonds, are issued by the World Bank. They come with tax benefits, including exemptions and credits, which make them more attractive and provides a financial incentive to support the changes that the planet needs to see. A bond has to be formally certified as a green bond, so it'll be verified by a third party such as the Climate Bond Standard Board. This looks at the projects the bond will fund and makes sure that they include financial benefits such as the Rampur Hydropower Project in India. In 2017, issue of green bonds hit an all-time high of $161 billion worth of investment, up from just $2.6 billion in 2012. 
Chinese borrowers accounted for a large part of the recent surge, but EU and American investors feature prominently too. These bonds tend to deliver the best results if they're viewed as a long-term investment. They're likely to be a safe rather than a high-yield investment, but disclaimer, don't take anything said here as encouragement or indeed discouragement to invest in green bonds. Take independent advice from an expert in the field. While you're at it, ask about the detail of bonds you're considering investing in. The EDF group runs nuclear plants in Britain and France, and they qualify as green for the purposes of bonds. But many investors might have strong feelings about that and prefer not to invest in nuclear power. Other companies issuing green bonds include Toyota to finance hybrid vehicle loans and Tesla's convertible green bond. A convertible bond can be converted from bond to stock, so that offers the investor some security. 2019 is the first year that the $100 billion investment milestone has been reached in the first half of the year. A target of $1 trillion annual investment in green bonds by the early 2020s has been set by the Climate Bonds Initiative, which supports the growing green and climate bonds market. The Climate Bonds Initiative is made up of organisations including the London and Swiss stock exchanges. These bodies, as you would expect, clearly see green bonds as a major business opportunity, but time and again we have seen when reviewing various sectors that a strong business model is vital and many sectors need help to get going. The EU has created a technical expert group on sustainable finance, which includes many well-known business names. Organisations including Unilever, WWF, Wildlife, Not Wrestling, and the Climate Bonds Initiative will develop a classification system for green bonds aimed specifically at improving disclosure of climate-related information. This is likely to ease the path of reaching the CBI's $1 trillion target. By October this year, Investment in green bonds had hit a record sum of over $202 billion. Some specific deals have helped this along, including one closed by Turner Energy worth £129 million. 33% of the proceeds went to energy projects, a comparable 29% to low-carbon buildings, 9% to water projects and 3% each to waste and land-use projects. The CEO of Climate Bonds Initiative, Sean Kidney, singled out France, Poland and Nigeria as major players in green bond issuance. He praised also the increasing diversity of issuers and saw signs of market maturation. However, he said that even the record figures seen this year aren't providing enough capital to address the climate emergency, hence the CBI's target of a trillion dollars of investment within the next two years. In America, there is an attempt to create a national climate bank focused on stimulating private investment in green power goods and services. There are already a number of state and municipal banks in the USA with this agenda, which the new National Climate Bank Act wants to build on to provide a non-profit national institution starting with $35 million of federal funds. Previous attempts have failed. So Senators Edward Markey and Chris Van Hollen are promoting the act by lauding the successes of the Connecticut Green Bank, the first in the USA, and the New York Green Bank, one of the largest in the country. The National Bank could both directly finance green projects and divert money to local green banks. 
There are now at least 14 green banks in the USA, handling about $4 billion of investment. Jeffrey Shubb of the Coalition for Green Capital believes that the initial federal investment of $4 billion could kickstart up to a trillion of investment over 30 years. As a national institution, the National Climate Bank could directly invest in projects that come with cross-state or political considerations. On a local level, it could provide finance to smaller green banks for local energy infrastructure. Robert Klee of Yale describes the National Green Bank as crucial to providing the private capital needed to provide clean energy nationwide. In his view, the Connecticut and New York banks have shown that investors can use the existing investment infrastructure and markets, lowering the risk for investors new to the sector, making them more comfortable with it. Klee says that individual states shouldn't be expected to provide this type of financing without federal input, and he sees an initial investment of more like $50 billion annually for a decade being necessary to get this going. The Connecticut Green Bank has attracted investment of $7 for every dollar of public money it invests, but this needs to increase significantly. The bank took a hit a couple of years ago when local politicians diverted half of its money to a budget gap. Since then, the bank has cut operating costs, but also looked to new revenue streams. It now issues green bonds backed by solar energy credits and is in the process of creating a mini green bond aimed at ordinary local people rather than big players. The mini green bonds will come in at under $1,000 and they're intended to support clean energy investment in the state with a return of 3-5%. to As well as the obvious goal of increasing revenues, the bank hopes to engage people locally. How can your business play its part in reaching net zero? If you could use some help with this frankly enormous subject, why not sign up for the Energy Live News webinar taking place at 11am on Thursday the 21st of November? Led by Angela Trina and Mark Westwood of Orsted, the webinar will consider questions including the role of energy in our greener future, corporate PPAs and policy and risk. Follow the link in the show notes to register. And what are we up to? Pet flaps are flying off the shelves and we're currently taking reservations for late November delivery. Please email info at ecoflap.co.uk to reserve yours. We're having reports of great results on Shetland, where no cat flap has previously stood up to the job. As our now repeat customer says, if it works on Shetland, it'll work anywhere. Next time, wooden buildings... Who are the radical green business leaders of the future and what is the Green Innovation Policy Commission?